0: We looked at a couple things last week. This, this diagram here will help you immensely make sense of the book. He never says this, but I figured it out by reading the book four times. <laughs> um, this is at the end of chapter two. He talks about, or I'm sorry, it's on page 17 if you want to make a note. These are, these are my words, but it's a basic paraphrase of what Lewis, how he describes the problem of pain. The, uh, the philosophical term is theodicy, which means uh, the questioning of God, I think, or the, the decisions of God. I have to double check that. Where's my Latin scholar? Theodicy. Do you know what that means? Um, do you know? Theos, de, say. Explaining God. God. Explaining God. Deco. Dico, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so how, how do you explain God? Because it's theos. Theos, right. Okay. Well, anyway, so we're going to... What's that? That's yeah, that's my field. So here's the, here's the basic question of theodicy. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's laid out like this. This is a syllogism. We're not going to get into logic tonight, but it's important because this is the basic gist of the whole book. You ready? If God were good... These are all premises. Some of you have law degrees or uh, mathematical degrees. You'll follow these this long. If God were good, premise one, he would make his creatures perfectly happy, premise two, right? So far? If God were all-powerful, omnipotent, he would be able to do as he wished. But his creatures aren't happy. Here's the, the negative. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power. Okay, now that may sound confusing. It's actually really, really simple. And the reason I'm telling you this is the entire book is based and structured around this very idea. We, um, if God is good, and he wants his creatures to be perfectly happy, and he's powerful, that sh- they should be happy, Right? but they're not happy, therefore something's wrong. Is that clear? Okay, that's the problem of pain. The reason I'm telling you that is if you look at, the, look at the argument here, this little problem of pain thing here, last week we talked about, we're gonna be talking about these different pieces. This is what I figured out. Last week we talked about the problem of pain, chapter one. Second chapter is God's omnipotence, right? Look at line two, if God were all-powerful, okay? And what we concluded last week was that God is omnipotent, but just because he's omnipotent doesn't mean he can do something which is logically impossible. God can't create a square circle or a blue, red, or anything like that. It's just nonsense. So, what Lewis is actually doing in the book is going through this syllogism and dissecting it. Is that clear? Okay, And if that doesn't help you, don't sweat it. You don't need to worry about all the logic, philosophy behind it. I'm just trying to give you a structure to approach the book. So we talked about, in chapter one, the problem of pain. How Lewis arrived at that conclusion. That will be on the website tomorrow. Um, then we looked at chapter two as, as whether God is omnipotent. And we discovered that God can be omnipotent, but he, doesn't, he can't do something which is contrary to his nature. So therefore, God can't do something which is going to violate his own creation or moral law. And we discovered also that God allows and desires for human beings to love him. I think this was in Lewis. And therefore, if that's true, if he's going to give us free will, he has to give us the ability to choose against what he wants. Is that clear? Okay. So if God is, just because he's omnipotent, doesn't mean he can can, can stop somebody from walking into a Uh, a mosque in New Zealand and blowing away 50 people it's not a criticism of God's omnipotence it is rather a decision that he allows people to have free will and he allows us to exercise our free will that will solve 90% of the problems of of the suffering of, of the problem of pain is that clear so for example if somebody does something horrible to you which people have and you've done things horrible to other people which you have God isn't gonna necessarily stop that. It's not a limitation on God. It's that he allows people to have free will to make decisions. And if he's gonna give us free will, he has to allow us to not follow him. Is that clear? It's pretty simple, but it's actually really, really profound. Um, When I asked Kathy to marry me back in whatever it was, remember the date or the year? 80, 94, 95, okay. So, yeah. So, anyway, when, we, when I asked her to marry, I asked her to marry before we got married, so I don't know the exact date before we got married, obviously. I know, that, I know how many years I've been married. Here's the thing. So, say, if I ask Kathy to marry me, and she says no, she said yes. Sucker. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She said yes, but say she'd said no. Right? So, she exercised her free will to say no. And so, I say, well, I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lock you in a closet and feed you under the door until you decide to say yes, right? You see what I'm going? So I violate, so I'm actually not taking her free will away, but I'm making her free will contingent upon me. If she then turns around and says, okay, I'll marry you as a result of being coerced, she's gonna get, I'm gonna let her out of that closet, she's gonna call the police, right? <laughs> that, does that make sense? And she should. <laughs> The point is the, here's, the, here's the really profound, the really profound point of that, is that if God desires us to love Him freely, He must allow us to not. That's not a limitation as in on His omnipotence, which is what this artist claims. That's not a limitation of his omnipotence. It's, a limit, it's his own self-imposed uh, desire to not force us to make a decision right? When I, I can't force Kathy to love me, I, all I can do is be who I am and hope she does. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's a really, really big one. And for a lot of your uh, people that you know that are wrestling with this, maybe if you are, you've been hurt by somebody, don't blame God. God gave them a f- the ability to make a free choice just like he gave you. And um, so the, 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 the fault does not lie with God. Is the suffering real? Yes. Somebody can wrong you really badly and cause tremendous suffering, but it's not God's fault. Is that clear? That's a biggie. All right. Now, we're going to look. So the omnipotence question, we've solved that one. Tonight, we're going to look at God's goodness. Okay? So um, a couple things that Lewis points out in chapter three, which is about God's goodness, which if you notice is in line one. If God were good, what does that mean? this is probably the best chapter of the whole book. What does it mean to say God is good? Let me ask you that, actually, let me ask you that question. What do you think, if you asked, you know, Mary at Publix, uh, at the deli counter, what, to define what it means to say that God is good, what do you think she'd say? Like, what do you think the culture says is what makes God good? Do you think people, let me back up, do you think people think that God is good? I think so. Why is insane, this is chapter one, because C.S. Lewis says, look around the world, man, it's full of suffering and predation and, and wickedness. Why in the world does humanity believe that God is good in the first place? It's a very, very good question. And of course, his answer is because we're made in God's image, right? But if people say, okay, I believe in God and I believe that God is good, what do you think they mean by that? This is really profound. I mean, and I'm, I'm, the answer is not profound, but what I'm going to tell you is. If I said to you, what do you mean to say that, is God good? People would say what? He's, loving. he's, yes. They'd say he's loving. What else would they say? Just throw it out. He helps me. What else? He's forgiving. Okay. He's created a wonderful world. Okay. He's, he's a creative God. He sent a savior. He sent, right? That's a good one. Anything else? What's that? Okay, kind, okay, you, thank you. <laughs> you just nailed it for me. Most people, think what, most people think of God's, most people, if you look at Lewis in, uh, in chapter three, most people would say that God is actually a, a lot like us. We, we impose our sense of what goodness is onto God rather than the other way around. So for example, Lewis makes the point in chapter 1 chapter 3 if God is wiser than we are which he is right can we just say that for sake of argument if God is omniscient he's wiser than we are then it is possible that we might see something as evil but really isn't is that clear so you have to so he's and again we don't have to dive into this too much but it is possible that something may appear to be spectacularly wicked but it might not, might not actually be. Is that clear? So for example, me, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, how many of you have kids, <laughs> or been around kids, right? Um, anybody here, okay, so say, I've got, I've got three girls. Say uh, one of them decides they don't want to get in the shower night before they go to school the next day, all right, and I say, if you don't get in the shower, I'm going to take away your phone. What's the very next thing out of her mouth? That's not fair. Would she ever say, that's loving? Would she? She would not, right? She'd say, that's not kind, that's not fair, dad. And I'd say, Grace, you, oh, you gotta get in the shower. And if you don't, I'm going, to, I'm going to exert some sort of punishment. Now, she's gonna perceive that as suffering, right? taking away a phone, or the threat of it, anyway, but is it really, is it evil, or is it actually good, what I'm asking her to do? It's good, right? She doesn't like it, right? But it's actually for her own what? Her own good, you see my point? And this is actually, I think, one of the most profound ideas that he, it's not really that profound, it's just like a of course moment, is we confuse God's goodness with God's loving kindness, page 30. In other words, God has an, may have an ulterior motive to allow and permit suffering to occur or even cause it for our own good. And, we, and, and actually, I would say this. We're all parents here, right? Not all of us, but many of us are parents, or at least we have been around kids. If you meet a parent who gives the kid everything they want, and never exerts discipline, is that person a good parent? No, No. why not? Why is is a parent that always says yes and is always kind, not a good parent? It's not a trick question. Why is that person not a good parent? Because why? They don't learn right from wrong, right? You're raising a person that no one will like. You're raising a person that no one will like. Amen to that. Jordan Peterson makes that observation. Yes, Barbara. They have no boundaries, but, but see, the person that's the parent does. This is the point, right? The parent, if the parent, if I say, get a shower, and she says, I don't wanna, I know that if she doesn't get in the shower to go to school, she's gonna be smelly, and the kids are gonna tease her, right? I'm kidding. I know better than she does, which is why I'm telling you, do something, even though she doesn't wanna do it. You see my point? Love. Again, if God's ways are not our ways, and God may do something which seems evil, but actually in his motive is good, if if that's a possibility, which it is logically, and if you make a practical example, which is not in Lewis, this is my own idea, that parents do this very thing. We impose discipline on our children, or even on colleagues at work or anything, not because we don't love them, but because we do. Is that clear? And if we know better than they do, that makes what we're doing good, even though it seems bad to the recipient. That's a biggie. What do you make of that? Anybody? Anybody have any observations or comments on that? Yes, Marilyn.
1: Wouldn't that really depend upon the motivation? If yes,
0: we, it depends if upon we, the motivation if of if why I happens. If to wanted
1: to, to tell somebody to do something simply because that's what we wanted them to do, but there's no good or bad involved in it, that, then that's the motivation of what we're doing might be evil
0: in That's exactly right. That's ex- so Marilyn's point is, doesn't it depend upon the motivation of the person exerting the discipline? Absolutely. But again, if God is good, his motive is always good, even if it appears to be suffering. Is that clear? So the point, and again, if you read scripture, this occurs over and over and over and over again, that God allows suffering to occur, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. And if any of you have spent any time in suffering, and you all have in different ways, um, there's an old expression that, uh, that the, uh, um, the crops don't grow on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. You ever heard that before? It's an old Baptisty thing or something. That the that the corn doesn't grow on the hilltop, a hill the hill the corn grows in the valley. Meaning, if you're a farmer, you don't you plant your crops in the ditch, right? Not on the tops. We all think that our spiritual growth should occur in the victories, but actually our spiritual growth usually occurs in the trough. Because when you're in the trough, you realize you only got one option. And that is God's that is why God permits suffering to occur. He permits it to occur. And I would submit to you, I would say God even might even bring you to the point where he exerts it, which appears to be suffering, but it's actually a corrective. Does anybody have any observation on that? I can think of lo- I can think of lots of times in my own life where I prayed for something and the answer was a resounding no. Right? And at the time, I was like, you know, why me, God? What have I done? I deserve this. What have I done to get this negative answer from you? But in hindsight, you look back and you think, oh my God, thank, thank God I didn't get what I asked for. So the point being, if God, God's love is, goes way beyond just kindness, it, encompass, and it, it encompasses this idea of helping us to become better than we were before. Is that clear, everybody? Any questions on that? He does go through, this is actually, um, I thought it was kind of, Confusing to me, but actually, he goes through a couple of different ways that God's love is expressed in Scripture towards mankind. And I'll be brief because I want to get to some questions. Um, starting on page 34, uh, Lewis describes God's love as the potter and the clay. All of these images have a common factor I'm going to show you. He describes that God's love for mankind is like the potter and the clay. Now, the, the metaphor breaks down because Clay is not sentient like we are. It doesn't, have a, doesn't believe and know it exists. But when a potter and the clay, what is the potter doing to the clay? Molding it and forming it, right? Do you think the clay wants to be molded and formed? I mean, if it, if it, if it could feel, probably not. But the idea is that's an image in Scripture that God is molding and forming a pot. Another one is a, 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 um, in Psalm 100, verse 3. God, the metaphor for God's love for us is expressed as, as a love for animals. He says, uh, we are his people, Psalm 100, verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Okay, well, is that just because God just loves sheep, fuzzy sheep? No, when you have, when you have an, a love, when a human has a love for an animal, what they're doing is making that animal better. You have a dog, anybody have, have dogs here? When you get them as puppies, what do you gotta do? You gotta housebreak them, you gotta train them, you gotta learn, teach them how to run. You are transforming them from where they were before to where they need to be. See my point? So the potter and the clay, God is forming. The, the, uh, the God with an animal, God is forming. God is taking a sheep and making it, Useful and making sweaters out of it. Um, love between is another one. A love between a man and his son. This is on page 37. This was a pretty cool one. Um, in ancient cultures, this is in ancient cultures, which is the context for uh, these Im- this imagery from the Old Testament. In ancient cultures, the way a father would, the way a son would would communicate love to his father is through obedience. And this sounds weird to us but stay with me. If you're a dad, right? many of you are dads, I'm a dad, and I say to one of my children, you know what, this is the best thing for you to do for your own welfare. They may or may not do it, but the, 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 the goal of a parent, and this would be true for moms too, is you want your children to obey you, not out of submissiveness, but out of being formed by you because you know something better than they do. Is that clear? So there's a repeating image of God's love towards humanity, and every single time it has to do with making that thing better. And then um, he talks about, uh, um, hmm. okay, God, love, love assumes, okay, and then we'll get to some questions. Um, love assumes that he, that the beloved, has something that we want. So for humans, we love Things that has something we want, right? I don't love liver sandwiches because I hate liver, right? But I really love steak, <laughs> right? So it has something I want. I, my wife has something I want. She's got many qualities that I don't have. God is completely self-sufficient. So what Lewis says here on page 44, I'm not sure I agree with him or not. On page 47, guy um, says we we want something other than we want some, We as people that love want something, but but, we, um, where am I here? Oh, page 44. It, it is because he chooses to need us and because we need we as people need to be needed. So that doesn't really, it may resonate with you. I didn't find that terribly convincing, but that was his point. Um, so, any questions on that? This idea of love, this chapter to me, or, or God's goodness, I thought was really profound because it changes the dynamic it allows for and in fact would even expect suffering not just as a matter of accident right and living in a fallen world but actually seeing suffering in this world as something which god does for our own benefit and if you think about it everything in life works this way if you decide you want to get in better shape what do you have to do exercise if you want to have a better marriage what do you got to do you got to work at it. Anything that you want to get to, get from here to there, always requires suffering in all different forms, but it always requires it. Growth always requires us to suffer. So rather than, so the, what Scripture says later, and we'll get to this later, is you don't so much run from it, but if you see it as something which God is using to make you a better person, it makes it easier to deal with. So any questions on that? How about some, yes, go ahead.
2: On page 34 it says, um, we are a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character.
0: Right. Does that mean we shouldn't be
2: too good? Because of the 19th
0: <laughs> okay, so the question was on page 34 he mentioned that the, um, God is taking inanimate objects and molding them. Is that right? I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Um, because he wants to get us, he wants us to be, get to where we are, not where we are, not where, get us from where we are to where he wants us to be. And then the question was, well, then should we not try so hard to be good so that God has something to work with? I'm a little, am I paraphrasing? Am I making your point? I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Um, let's look at these questions we have here. So um, let's look at. These questions here, and these are real questions, so I'm gonna get some discussion, then we can move on to chapter four. How might something which appears to be evil, do I have these questions on here? I think I do. Uh, problem th- uh, chapter three, question one. How might something which appears to be evil be truly good? How might something which truly appears to be good be truly evil? Two sides of the same coin. Does that make God Inconsistent. How might... The, this, is, this was my own... These are all my own questions, by the way. Um, how might... This is not Lewis. This is Rodriguez. How might the Beatitudes change our conception of what is good and evil? Anybody? How might something which appears to be evil be truly good? Hmm? You don't know? Well, sometimes we're given a big challenge. Let's say it works. Okay. We think, this is
2: too much. I can't do this. And right. And then... With God's help,
1: you do achieve it. Mm-hmm. So I think we don't know what's good for us.
0: Sometimes we don't. Yeah, that's a good point. So sometimes things are put in our life that are challenges, which God calls us to then rise to. Is that fair? So it appears to be evil, but it's a challenge which God is calling us to grow from. Okay. Um, Bill? I don't think we can recognize
1: how God looks at things. I mean, that's some of the things he's talking about. Right. So we have no way of evaluating... What is really evil? We can see what what we think is evil, right. but we do not know what God
0: thinks. Yeah, and let, let me. And actually, I made a mistake here in the way I've worded this. Thank you. You just raised something for me. Uh, we have to be we have to be careful in the words evil and suffering. They're two different things. So evil is like murder. <laughs> you know, you know evil we all know what evil is, right? Evil is, is using the will to do something harmful to somebody else. Murder, stealing, you, you, know, you, you know the big 10, right? Ten Commandments, for example. So God, is not, God does not commit evil, but God might use suffering. Suffering is just ex- the experience of pain. God could use suffering to make us better, right? So God will not use evil to make us better, but he can use suffering. He may use somebody else's evil to make you better, but he's not going to impose evil upon you. Does that make a good point? Yeah. Um, and I'll, t- I'll show you a second one I mean. Yeah, Lynn? I'm sorry, but I keep
2: thinking of 9-11. Okay. How do you, how do you explain that? Okay. In terms of the
0: evil. I'll repeat, I'll repeat the question. How would I explain non- 9-11 was... Uh, was, we know what 9-11 was. It's actually two points that I'm actually, and thank you for asking, it's a very good illustration. The Lord allowed those people to use their free will to drive those airplanes into those buildings. He allowed it, he permitted it to happen. Could he have stopped it? Yes, he could have suspended natural law, we talked about this last time, but if God is always suspending natural law, then there's no real law in nature. So, but that's his call, he's God, he can do what he wants. He allowed the exercise of free will, right? Which was also done with the intention of committing harm by those people. Which so that's an act of evil, not God's act of evil, but those 14 men's act of evil. Did good come from that? Did suffering come from that? Absolutely. I know lots of people that were not. I don't, but I know people, uh, children of people who died there, and you, some of you may know people that were killed in those attacks or in the wars which followed. But did good come of it too? It did. Not as a result of the attack, but as a result of the the people around it exercising their free will to do the right thing. Like that one priest who ran into the, was a fire department chaplain, and ran into the buildings, getting pulling people out, and was killed. Right? That was an, a selfless act of the will to do good. And what's that? Shanksville. Uh, and Shanksville, those—that's a good point. When Shanksville and those guys down that plane, that was somebody again using their free will to do the right thing. So, um, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, it seems so. You could you could blame God? Could you blame God for the for the the exercise of the free will by those terrorists to bring those planes down? No, I don't think you can. Um, Barbara, real quick. Yeah. And um. What
2: about Satan? Believing Satan. Out
0: Satan, okay, Satan to the devil is, the, the, the word Satan is, means um, satanas. it's a Greek word, it means the adversary or the tempter. Uh, it's actually, if you're, a, if you're on the stand in a court of law, the, the satanas is the lawyer who's the prosecuting attorney. I mean it, that's, the word, or that's where it comes from. I'm not saying lawyers are bad. I'm just saying, the, and I'm not, I'm really not. I don't have, law is a very noble field. The, no, no, it's, but that's that. So it's the, the, the Satan is always the adversary against us. So I would say, uh, that Satan has, which I believe in, I believe in demons because Jesus talks about them frequently. Uh, I believe they do have it. they do have the ability to influence our behavior. They are not omniscient, by the way. They can't, they cannot know your thoughts like God does, neither can an angel. But they know you well enough by observation to probably guess, if that makes sense. Good question. That's but that's not, I don't want to. Yes, Susan. Another interesting thing, though, after nine eleven,
2: uh-huh. you know, I think in general people did not feel that God was playing for that because church attendance increased
0: tremendously. That's right. Church attendance increased, and the churches stepped up too. I mean, I mean, America. A lot of. You know, I think, again, not only i going to a political rant on this, but um, I do think a lot of the very best aspects of our culture came out at that, as a result of that, those attacks. Um, some bad stuff, too, but I think overwhelmingly good. Um, and again, does that mean, does, does God, you know, do you need to have evil to have good? No, you don't, uh, but evil, uh, suffering can lead to it's all about free will, right? How you choose to use the will that God has given you. That answers a lot of the problem of suffering. Let me show you one thing and then I'll move on. I mentioned in here chapter uh, the Beatitudes, right? About this whole idea of good and evil, um, or good and bad, good and suffering. Uh, Matthew chapter five, verses three through 12, we're not gonna read them, but I'll give you in paraphrase. What does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor. What? He turns, the, the, someone. I, a good buddy of mine that preached a sermon on the Beatitudes, he described it as the description of the upside-down kingdom. I love that image, where God takes everything which on the world seems good and flips it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are, blessed are the uh, meek, for they shall inherit. Blessed are the, the meek, those on the bottom of the barrel, for they shall inherit, will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, those are things which are seemingly bad, from a worldly perspective, but are actually from God's perspective, good. Is that clear? So, again, to Bill's point, I was, I'm glad you said that, Bill, about evil. Uh, I, God will not impose evil upon you. He's not because God doesn't do evil, but there may be suffering as a result of somebody else's evil that He can then, that He you have the choice to use for right or for wrong. Any questions on that? So, is this helpful? Okay. yeah
1: when i talked about training the dog to he did. respond he also made the point when he himself was a an atheist yes for example, and brought himself up to a level of understanding uh, i called it a dumbing up dumbing up dumbing up okay and um i think that explained it to me that
0: uh you have that choice of coming up to it and understanding it? Yes. Or not. People have, a, have the decision. The People have... That's right. God gives you a choice. But again, if God's motive is love, God's nature is love, and what God designed you for is to love him, that's why you're here, okay? You're not, he's not here for you. You're here for him. Because God's nature is to be creative and to love. So therefore, he, ele- he wants you to love him, but he, can't, he cannot, by definition, force it. Is that any more than I can lock my wife in a closet until she agrees to marry me. Right? Thank you, my dear.
1: There's <laughs> that says, I um, think that nothing works off pagan. Theism from Christianity so sharply as Aristotle's doctrine that God moves the universe and so on moving as the beloved um, moves the lover. But for Christendom, Herein is love—not that we love God, but that He loved us. Right. That's exactly right. So it's like you were saying that you were created to love Him, but Christianity says His purpose is to love us, which is so so dramatic.
0: Right. Well, His God God creates us to love for to love us and us to love Him in return. That's why we're here, right? God's nature is love, and love is a creative force by definition, right? Love. Uh, God Himself is the, the Christian God is a Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are relational terms, right? And if you read, if you know we don't have time for this tonight. But if you go through the New Testament, you will see that uh, there are areas of Scripture which describe how God, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. The the, the 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 Trinity, God's very nature is relational, right? Fascinating. All right, let's move on to. Um, um, Chapter number four, which is human evil. So we talked about God's goodness, God's omnipotence. I want to, omnipotence. Let's look at human evil for a spell, if we could. Um, this is interesting. On page 49, uh, Lewis makes the observation, I did not know this, and if anybody has a comment, uh, feel free to throw a flag. He makes the comment that pagan cultures, which I have very little understanding of. Lewis was a scholar of... Um, old myths and things, that was his big, uh, his big uh, interest. Uh, but he would say that, old, that pagan religions, by default, had, a, had an understanding that God, that God would punish them for wrongdoing, okay? Which I didn't know. So he, basically, if he says, if you look at all of human history, you will find people have an understanding that, that if they do something wrong, God will revenge, will take revenge, okay? Now, maybe if anybody has any understanding of Viking culture or something, maybe if you have an example, you can throw it. But um, uh, so, and then Lewis says, but the problem is, he said, actually, in, in the earlier times in the church, people had an understanding in the culture that human beings were not okay. Right. So in other words, he would say that human, if you had said to somebody uh, what you've done, there's going to be a consequence to you as a matter of divine wrath, which I love that word, I'll get to that in a minute, um, that would have been, nobody would have blinked an eye. He says until, um, came along, he uses the word, this is on page 50. This is actually a really good section to read. Uh, on page 50, he talks about psychoanalysis, by which he means Freud, um, who nobody really, well, yeah, I'll leave it at that. He talks about Freud. Um, and he says, uh, page 50, that psychoanalysis, meaning um, psychological understanding, the therapeutic understanding of humanity, right? And I'm not knocking psychologists, I'm just saying, this idea of seeing all of humanity from a therapeutic worldview has taught the culture that a sense of shame is a dangerous and mischievous thing. That's a great quote. And, he's, and what he's saying, um, what he's saying is that um, what he's saying is that we that the culture has moved. I, I think he's right on this, and if you don't, raise your hand. But I think he's onto something here. I think, and this is pretty recent. So the psychoanalysis would have been in no, um, no nah, nah, Freud was what, nineteen anybody know? 19th. Sorry? 19th. It, I, early century. Yeah, I would say late late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century. So um, but Freud was just a beginning of this idea of the, uh, of the, and it was also the post-Enlightenment, right? So there's a lot of different cultural things going on here. But the idea that maybe shame and uh, a sense of shame is not, a, is not a good thing, but in fact a bad thing. Do you think our culture believes that to be true? Let me rephrase the question. Do you think that, P- if you go to Publix and ask Mary at the, at the deli counter who's cutting your uh, roast beef for the week, and you say, hey Mary, shame. A good thing or a bad thing? What's she going to say? Bad. bad, right? But is it? Well, it depends. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be shame? What does shame mean? Can someone define that for me? Good. ahead. It's, it, an, an understanding of your own sin, guilt, okay? Is, which, by the way, which is one of the reasons why, which uh, Lewis gets into, every human experiences, right? Everybody experiences it. The question is, what do you do with it? Psychoanalysts and psychologists, secularists would say, you just either deny its existence or you blame somebody else, right? Or you stuff it. You don't deal with it. Uh, What Christianity would say is, well, shame can be a good thing, but only in one circumstance. Everybody know what? What is good shame if it does what? It brings you to. It brings and it brings you to a state of what? repentance. I've said this before many times. And so shame can be a bad thing. If, you, if somebody has shame and guilt that uh, they carry, and a lot of people do, um, there's a way out. It's only It only functions as a good thing uh, to the extent that it gets you to repent. And then you leave it. I've said to somebody, I was counseling somebody a few years ago, and I just, this just came to me as I was listening to this person talk to me. And I said, you know, shame is a parasite. It is. It, it is. It can be good. I said, Doug. I called it good guilt and bad guilt. Good guilt, good shame is shame when you go, oh man, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> right? I cannot believe I did that again, which we've all done. And that's actually, I would say, I would submit to you, that is actually a work of the Holy Spirit on the human heart. If, you're, if you are a inf- Christian, the Christian, well, actually take, even, take that aside. All humanity has a sense of shame and guilt the question is, what do you do with it? If you just live in it and have it destroy you, then it's a parasite. It's not good. Good guilt is guilt which you go, I got to make a change. And you, ask, you repent. You ask the Lord to forgive you, which he does. You give him the sin, which he also takes, which is very hard to do. And then you move forward. So Lewis has actually got this really great little nugget here on page 50 about about this idea of shame and guilt and how God can use shame and guilt to help us get to a place of where we need to be. Um, hmm. We think we are better than we really are. We, we assume corporate. He says one of the things we do is we assume corporate guilt rather than individual guilt. Do you think, I see this, in my opinion, in our culture today, rampant. Uh, we, we have, uh, again, I don't, don't want to do politics, but politics are, there's a lot of political division at the moment. Uh, if you look at, you'll see people that will say, I don't know, maybe I don't, don't wanna to touch this one. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm going for it, Bill. I'm, I'm going for it. So if you wanna say like, you know, America has a history of slavery or oppression or whatever. Are uh, those things true? Yes, it's true. But A, you can't do anything about it now. You can't do anything about it. No one would argue that it was good anymore. The question is, do you live in a sense of corporate guilt and always have that make you impact the way you live your life now? Or do you, I know how you would do this as a culture, as a country, or do you figure out a way to recognize it occurred, to uh, admit that it was wrong, which I think anybody in their right mind would do, and then move on? He, Lewis says he thinks that one of the, this is, back in, this is back written back in 1940s, that people were beginning to move into this idea of a corporate guilt. And a corporate guilt is a guilt which is diffused, right? Meaning we all kind of share in it. You can't possibly repent of that. Can you? I don't think you can. Can anybody think of how you could get a group of people to repent of something? I mean, you could all get together and say, make a, make a, a statue of uh, you know admitting a fault, and our culture was wrong. You can do all that. We've done that stuff, but how can you ever make a change to a past event? And you can't. Anyway, maybe that's maybe that's a little bit <clears throat> nebulous. What do you think? Does anybody have a comment on that? Restitution comes, that. restitution comes out in that. It does. It's starting to. Hmm? Pay, pay people. Pay people. So, yeah, that, that's a that's a very good discussion, but I'm not in favor of that. I'll be honest with you. Um, well, let's do that. So anyway, um, he also says one thing I want to get into a little bit here today. He says um, we have a we have a tendency to think that we are better than we really are, and we and, and he says something which I thought was fascinating. He says we begin we begin to um, be, we begin to blame other people for our own. This, I think, is huge. I think uh, he mentioned this in passing at the, on page 59. Um, he says, we shift the blame for our own individuality onto some. This is actually really great. We shift the blame for our own individuality, individual sin, to some inherent necessity in humanity. What does that mean? Uh, he says, we, we begin to say things like, well, it's not my fault. I was. That's how God made me. You've ever heard of that before? <sighs> Sorry. My dad made me take a Personality tests. What's that, Bill? My dad made, made me take a shower. My dad made me take a shower. <laughs> that was a long time ago. She's perfectly. That was a long time ago when that happened. But, but, but this is actually it's something he mentioned completely and kind of in passing. And I think, man, all these years later, it's really come to come home to be a real thing, that we have this idea of blaming, hum, blaming humanity for our, our own individual, rather than owning it as an individual, which you can then repent of, which is incredibly empowering, right, and life-changing. There's nothing more empowering than life-changing than saying, man, I'm a sinner. That is so empowering and life-changing because it gives you the tools to be honest with yourself, to be honest with God who already knows you, and it gives you the ability to then make a change for the better, when you say oh, I was made, God made me this way, and you might have been born with a predisposition to a certain sin, we all are, but to say that it's, you were made that way and therefore you can't change it, what you're really doing, Lewis says here, is you're blaming God. That's fascinating. I thought it's a little heady, and I'm going to get some, some questions, but yes.
2: Like adult children and Parents,
0: you know. They blame their parents when they were young. When they were young. Yep. Yeah. At some
2: point, you have to accept responsibility for your own
0: life. At some point, you have to accept responsibility of your own life. The pro, you know, and this is actually the real tragedy. This is I. This is again not Lewis, but excuse me, but me. The church, I I think, has tried to be. Politi- not politically correct, but try to be more culturally sensitive and kind of downplay this idea of repentance. Downplay the idea of, a, of personal responsibility. Downplay sin. How many of you go to churches, maybe not here, but elsewhere, where they ever talk about sin? Rarely, right? Our church in
2: Connecticut, we had a priesthood of no such thing as sin.
0: No such thing as sin? That is, that, that is, that is pastorally... That, A... A, it flies in the face of common sense because we all know it. We all have an intrinsic sense of shame and guilt. We do, not all the time, but we all know we do things wrong. And to tell somebody there's no such thing as sin is cruel because you remove any possibility of that person being changed. I, and Jesus died to take it. Exactly, that's exactly the point. So you can't, you can't ask the Lord to take a sin from you unless you were willing to first admit that you had it, you know? And, and I don't know. I think that, well, it's really, it's, it's tragic. And I don't, know, I don't know why people have done it, but it, as Susan pointed out, it's, it happens. What doesn't?
2: Well, you know, you want to make everybody feel good, so you know right, exactly. there's no such thing as sin.
0: But then everybody feels good. Right. So so Lynn made the point we want everybody to feel good, so we don't tell tell them there's any such thing as sin. But does that fundamentally in the long term make them feel good? There has to be a counterbalance because I've been married. Yes. And they have, okay, there's shame,
1: but there's being shamed.
0: Okay. And there's also where you have. Sin, but when you're sinful, you're told you're sin- There has to be some of... Um, there right? has to be, you're right. So sin, yes. Shame without, without grace is cruel, right? So in other words, if you give some just shame without the gospel, that's cruel. Just grace without shame is cruel, right? You have to have both. You have to have, because it's true. You have to have both this idea of, you know, you're fallen and you can't get up on your own. But but you, all, but counterbalance with the gospel that Jesus offers to save us. Shame, shame without grace without, is cruel, and grace without shame is equally as cruel. Yes. Uh, do you have something, Father?
2: Uh, so, Father Carlos, uh, Renee Brown is really popular now with guilt and shame. Yep. She says, um, the way that she goes, she says, guilt is I have done bad. Shame is I am bad. Oh, that's a good point. And so, and then she also says that people remain true to the image they have of themselves. But I learned since coming to the mystical tradition that you have to be honest about the fact that I am that. Right. But you don't have to stay that way. That's right. And so picturing a better version of you by the grace of God and looking towards that is perfectly worthwhile. So that's, that's right. the common way of talking.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the idea of good guilt and bad guilt, I made that up, so feel free to use it if you want to. Good guilt and bad guilt. Good guilt is guilt which brings you to a state of recognition of, oh man, I gotta go to the Lord, right? I need someone to help me with this because I can't do it on my own, which is true. But once you're there, put it away. Because after that point, it's no longer a tool which is helpful for you. It's something which, to your point, it becomes internalized and that's not good. That's actually, that's defeating. Let's look at a couple of questions here, then I'll wrap it up. Um, Question number one, uh, let's see. Did I get through all these here? Uh, Does anybody have any questions about guilt stuff before we move on to to these? Or any comments? Okay, so question number one. Do you think, this is an opinion question, is more difficult to preach the gospel now than in earlier times? Has the public, excuse me, notion of sin changed this dynamic and how? That's a big question. These are really good discussion questions probably. But do you think it's more difficult to preach the gospel now than it was in past times? Sorry? You do. How come?
2: Well, I think because our, our world has changed so, and our country has changed so, that people are moving away from the gospel. They're moving away from churches. Right. And definitely that makes it more difficult to preach the gospel because they're not listening.
0: Yeah, right. he makes the point. That's a good point, Connie. He makes the point in the book that we have to first preach the problem before we can preach the cure. It used to be, in his, his understanding, that in pagan cultures and in the past, people had an intrinsic sense of their own, need, their own guilt and their own need to be helped. But now he makes the point that the church has to first convince people of that and then give them the solution. I'm not sure I agree with him. I'll tell you why. I think if you can say to people, like we're doing tonight, right, how we all know we have shortcomings, and we're not all horrible people, but we all have things we want to work on and things that are broken and fallen about us. If you say that to a group of people, like I'm saying now, I can see every one of you going, yeah, you're right, because we all know it. It doesn't make us bad. It just means we all know that God, that we're sinners and we need help. I think if you are, if the church is willing to articulate that, right, and then say, here's how you get, here's the fix, people respond because it's true. So I don't know if he's right or not. I mean, this is an opinion. What do you, what do you think, Paul?
2: I think the problem is different now than it was
0: Yeah. yeah, but I do think you know. This is actually you guys could do this too. I mean, this is not a priest's job. This would be any Christian's job, just to be clear and straight. You know, you're talking to one of your friends and say, "Hey, Mary, you know, I know when you, you know when you've done something wrong. It's you're, we all know what guilt is. We all know what that is. We've all experienced it. Let me show you how. Let me show you the solution to that. And and this idea of being good guilt and bad guilt. Good guilt is useful a tool only to the degree that it gets you to change. Once it's once you've done that, or at least started to do that, get rid of it. Susan, do you have a, a point? Yeah, I, I think the point, I kind of was
2: in between believing that you were in agreement with what you were saying and agreeing with Connie as well, but yep. I think it depends on, in this country, anyway on where you are. I
0: mean, I think here in Barrow
2: Beach, preaching the gospel is a good thing because people are hungry for the word of God and they're listening and keeping it in their heart and in their lives. Like, if you go up in the Northeast and you start preaching the gospel in church, you know, probably half the people are going to walk out because they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear about that they're bad, they're sin, that they need Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, when I I was director in Red Bank, New Jersey, for six years before I came here. And I did exactly there what I'm doing here. And it grew. Not because of me, but because it's just true. Yeah, I, I think that, that I think is the problem. That I think is the problem. And you're not saying, I mean, again, I, I hope I never, God forbid, God forbid, that I ever come across in, an, in a judgmental way. I don't. I mean, I'm a, as broken as anybody else in this room, and God knows. But I do know that there's... That, that the common human condition is that we all are aware of our own faults. We all know it. And the question is, as a, as a priest, how do you help people get out from underneath that? You gotta diagnose the problem and then give them the solution. But I think you, you may be onto it if people are just afraid, afraid to preach the gospel. Yeah, uh, Marilyn, and then Bruce. Uh, well, I think
1: there's a difference between uh, guilt and internalizing guilt and shame. And being shamed, and then figuring out how you get out of it. Yeah. Because we live in a society now, which is obviously much more. Uh, everybody is aware. I mean, I'll, I'll use the college, uh, the, the college board. admissions <laughs> issue. Yeah. The people that have been caught are angry they
0: were caught. And they blame other people. This is the pro- this is the thing. But this, is a, but this is actually my point, though. So this is actually my point. If you look at even, even, I don't want to bang on millennials, but I will because he's standing right there. No, no, I mean, even like, if you look at people like, on, I, know, I don't want to beat up on college kids. There's, that's a really wide group of people. But if you look at people in the culture, younger people that maybe aren't as, have never been exposed to the gospel, have no idea about any of this stuff, they are just as guilt-ridden as anybody else would be. But the way they deal with it, like he says, is they blame. Right? which doesn't solve the problem. That's why I got people running around at these, you know, on both sides, causing mayhem politically because there's this angst inside. Everybody knows it's there and they don't know how to get rid of it. So they blame, they blame the Republicans, they blame the Democrats, they blame Trump, they blame Pelosi, whatever. And the point being that they're, they're saying that person is the cause of my angst rather than maybe it's my own brokenness and I need to repent of it. So it's, again, it's cruel, yeah. <laughs>
1: Part of that, which is, as a parent for me, despicable, yeah. is what have you taught your children? You, you're going to get in, into a school that they can't do well in, so now you're going to have to, what, pay tutors, uh, pay people to cheat? What happens when they graduate?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got nothing on that one. It was cheating to get into- it is horrible. But I think, but looking at, but again, to Susan's point, looking at the reaction of people when they get called out, if they were just say, man, I blew it. That, you, can, you can change that. that you could, that's, that's the way of redemption, right? You know, and there may be influences. You know, I wanted my kid to do well. I was afraid she wasn't going to get in. You know, there's always reasons. None of us make, you know, things to be willfully wicked. We've all sorts of demonic influences on us, right? To try to convince us what we're doing is good when it really isn't. That's true, but the only way you're ever gonna get out from underneath it is to admit it, right? Yeah. Blaming somebody else, even if it's true, in part, even if, those, even if the blame is well-deserved or well-founded, is never gonna, never gonna get, get you out from underneath it. That's my opinion. The gospel, I, think, I do think the gospel is just as relevant today as it was, and just as powerful if you can articulate it. What's that, Susan? It's relevant. You got it, but you gotta know how to, it's just a way, you know presenting it in a different way. One more. Any, anybody other have an observation on that? Let me, uh, let me, I have one other, this is a little bit more loaded, but it came to me, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask it. Um, how might, this is the, this is question number four for chapter four. How might identity politics be the blame? I'm sorry. I mean, how might identity politics move the blame for human evil from humans to God? Do you know what I mean by the question? Okay. Identity politics is when, uh, kind of what we are talking about a minute ago, something happens to you, you find something in the world, in the culture that you don't like, and you blame that group, right? And it can be white supremacists or, what's the other, the left, left-wing group? Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the ones that go on? The social, no, there's a, group, there's a group I'm thinking of that does the, uh, they wear the black stuff and they go and they, Antifa. Okay, so you could say, I, you know, it's their fault, it's the liberals' fault, it's the it's their conservatives' fault. That's what I would say as a, identity politics, blaming a group of people for something which actually is, which affects you. And my question, did you, do you understand my point what an identity politic is? Okay, not really. Maybe it's a bad question. Hmm? There are plenty of people that do that.
2: You know, as you mentioned before, you know, we're still blaming the slave owners and, and the people that killed the Indian, American Indians. You know, I mean there are still culture culturally in this country, we still are carrying that forward. Like there needs to be restitution for that are living and right.
0: Right. I don't know how do you get out of that. Uh, well like like Alan was saying, he's gonna he's gonna pay the restitution for us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think. I, I think, though, if you again, the question is. Um, okay, my battery's dying. Thank you, Father. I got to wrap it up. Um, I'm done. So, thank you, everybody. Uh, did you enjoy this? Better. Okay. Uh, what? The identity politics one? Yeah, that be a good. That's a good discussion starter. Uh, I hate to do, poli- I mean, I have political opinions, strong ones. I hate to do them in church settings because it's divisive. Uh, but maybe we can bring it up, Charlie. I think of a way to do it, which is, uh, which is uh, understanding of people that differ. What's that? Let's get to say right, the right way. Not the defending. right way. Yeah, I don't want to, the last thing I want to do is cause political, people to look at, you know, but political understanding. You're blaming people because of their identity and not the group. It's basically an ad ad hominem argument. You're blaming people for their identity in a group, whether it's white, black, brown, whatever, rather than than actually dealing with the argument. So anyway, before we go, why don't we pray, and then we can, you guys can stay and chat if you want to. There's no rush, but let's close in prayer. The Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for uh, bringing us together tonight. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us of uh, your goodness and our evil, be blunt, our own brokenness. Uh, Help us to see, Lord, that we are not in fact trapped by our sin, but in fact liberated from it through through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, in our place who died to save us from these sins and restore us to relationship with you in the life of joy and peace and glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.